We continue our study of the Shorter Catechism, making our way through the moral law of God, summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, looking now at the sins forbidden in the First Commandment, having looked at the duty, what does God positively require of us in the First Commandment, that we are to know God, that we are to acknowledge Him as the only true God and our God, and to worship and glorify Him accordingly now. Looking at the negative side, the question then comes, what is forbidden in the first commandment? The answer comes back, the first commandment forbiddeth the denying. It's the first sin, to deny God. Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. Here we see the prohibition of what we call atheism, where someone says there is no God, or that's their profession, in his heart, in his thinking, in his willing, and in his affections, the fool denies that there is a God. And that's what it means for him to be corrupt and to have done abominable works. That's the logical outcome. Atheism produces abominable works corruption, and all those sorts of things. So that's the fool. And that's all of us by nature, actually. We are all in that condition of foolishness until the Lord saves us. Ephesians 2, verse 12, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. This is a sinful condition where we are severed from Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from all God's promise. You recall that all the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yea, and they're amen to the glory of God the Father. This is the same thing. Gentiles were cut off from the life of God, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants that God made promise to David to Abraham, to Moses, to all the saints in the Old Testament, and therefore were without God. Now that word without God in Greek is atheoi, atheists, those who are severed from God, those who exist as if there were no God. That's the idea. In fact, of interest is that Christians were accused of atheism by the Romans because they were without the gods, and therefore they said, you Christians deny our gods, you're therefore atheoi, you are atheists. But this is what it means here to for, forbid the denying. It forbids us from being atheists, from saying there is no God. All right, then number two, the first commandment forbiddeth the denying or not worshiping and glorifying the true God as God and our God. And this is what we call profanity, where a person does not worship God, a person does not glorify God as the true God, and does not receive God as his own God. That's profanity. So first is atheism, next is profanity. Romans chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, where we read, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, 
even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Here the Bible teaches us, not only, as we saw in Psalm 14, that all men are fools by nature, but here we see that people profess themselves to be wise, and they become fools. And part of how that profession of wisdom comes about is that there is a natural knowledge of God. All men by nature as created in God's image and through beholding the works of God in the universe around them, everyone knows God, verse 21, because that when they knew God, in fact, that's a premise of the common law. One of the maxims of the common law is that all men know God. Everybody has a natural knowledge of God. And that's the premise on which civil laws proceed because we start with that assumption that there is no excuse to be ignorant of the law. It's only Ten Commandments. You can read it in the Bible very easily. But here, the ignorance does not exist. Nobody has ignorance of the true God. They may profess it. They may speak it to themselves in their hearts. They may set up courses and laws in schools and in civil jurisdictions to say there is no God. But everybody knows that it is the case. It's a fundamental First premise of philosophy is that there is a God. So everybody knows this. But with that knowledge of God, they profaned that knowledge. They did not use that knowledge in the right way. They took the truth of God and they said, I'm not going to glorify the true God. I'm not going to be thankful. I'm going to make up some empty imaginations and my heart will then become darkened. They didn't say that part, but that's what God inflicted on all of us by nature because of our refusal to be thankful and to glorify God. So this is forbidden, though, by the first commandment. And then there, Psalm 81, verses 8 through 11, the Lord says, Hear, O my people, and I will testify unto thee, O Israel, if thou wilt hearken unto me, there shall no strange God be in thee. Neither shalt thou worship any strange god. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out, excuse me, open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. So here we see God's call to his people. Listen to what I'm saying. I redeemed you out of Egypt. I've called you as my people. I gave you the first commandment. No strange god. No worshiping of strange gods. I'm your God, he says. If you have needs, I will meet them. Open your mouth wide, and I'll fill it. But listen, this is the tragedy of Israel's history, verse 11. But my people would not hearken to my voice, and Israel would none of me. They would not receive me as the true God. They would not glorify and worship me as the true God, and even as their God, even though I am their God from the land of Egypt until now, they will not receive me. They will not hearken to my voice. They will have none of me. They have no interest in the true God. That's what he's saying here. And this, of course, is forbidden by the first commandment. That's the context. He gave them the commandment in verse 9. 
but they refused to receive it in verse 11. Okay, number three there. The first commandment forbiddeth the denying or not worshiping and glorifying the true God as God and our God and the giving of that worship and glory to any other which is due to him alone. So first, the first commandment forbids atheism. Second, it provides or uh, prohibits profanity. And third is it prohibits idolatry. And here, Matthew chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, the devil says to Jesus, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. It's that simple. Just some external action. One is falling down, and the other is to proskuneo. You guys remember that from last week? It means to act or behave as a dog does to its master. It means literally to lick the hand. Dog walks up, sniffs you, and licks your hand. They say, "I am, I am your servant. I will do what you say, what you say to me." That's a well-trained dog. So worship is literally to treat someone as if you were a dog to your master. And so that's all Satan said. Just some gestures, some external gestures of honor and worship to me. Show me those and I'll give you all these things. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. So only gestures of worship toward God himself. No worship No acts of worship, liturgo is the idea there of serve. It's where you engage in some kind of public act of honor to, it used to be civil magistrates, but then eventually it came to be used in religious worship as we think of it, where you honor a god or some um, saints. Actually, people do this for saints, the demigods that the papists and the Eastern Orthodox worship. They offer liturgos, they offer proskuneo, they do religious gestures at images, they do it at invocation of angels, and they burn incense to pictures and images and these sorts of things. That's exactly what it says not to do. If you give the worship and glory to God that is only due to him to anyone else, that is forbidden by the first commandment. You've apostatized from the true God Because the object of your worship is something other than, less than, related to God, but not God. All of that is forbidden. And that's why, for example, when Peter was honored with proskuneo, that's the verb it uses. When Cornelius bowed before him, he bent his knee and bowed in religious submission to Peter. Peter told him what? Stand up, for I also am a man of like passions with you. In other words, I'm not the true God, and therefore I am not a proper object of worship. Now, worship is one thing, glory is another. So if you ask a creature how the true God should be worshipped, that's giving the glory that belongs to God to a creature. Because now you're telling the creature, you have authority to bind my conscience in worship, which actually only belongs to whom? only belongs to the true God. So if we go to creatures, ourselves or others, dead or living, and we say, you should tell me how God really should be honored because that's your right. 
That's giving the glory to a creature which is due to God alone. That's why God looks, as you see throughout the Old and the New Testament, that anytime people worship God according to the traditions of men or the doctrines and commandments of men, or according to the imaginations of their own heart, according to the work of their own hands, those are all ways God describes competition with himself. He describes that as you taking upon yourself a divine right and imposing your will on God. Because it's not just people that you impose your will on when you say people ought to worship in this way that God hasn't designated. You're also imposing on God who presumably you're pretending to worship, drawing near with your lips that you worship him. Your heart is estranged from him because you won't even ask him, well, tell me, how should you how should you be honored? No, I'm going to impose on you, God. You will be honored in these means that we have devised. And in many cases, that includes... Um, in Christianity, going back to God's ways of worship in the Old Testament and cherry-picking little bits and pieces out of the Mosaic economy and saying, we Christians should observe this. We should burn incense. They burned incense. We should have sacred vestments with religious significance like they had sacred vestments with religious significance. We should have altars just like they had altars. We should have priests just like they had priests. All these are saying, we ought to go back and make up our own worship suitable for the church under age, suitable before the cross where Christ fulfilled all those things, we ought to take those things and import them into our worship. We ought to observe the Passover. We ought, and some people do this. They'll have a little, what they call a Seder meal, where they observe a Passover meal as if they were Jews, as if the Old Testament economy was still standing, as if we were still part of a church that had not received the fullness of the gospel of Christ. Totally unsuitable. All these are ways that God has not commanded. And therefore, we're giving the glory to others, which is due to God alone. All right, then Romans 1, verses 23 through 25. And they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image, made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness, through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator." Okay, this passage is extremely instructive. One of the church fathers named Athanasius, he used the analogy of people worshiping graven images as like, a graven image is without animation. It has no spirit in it. It's just a thing, right? Just chinked off some pieces or you put it into a mold or you cut the wood out. Whatever you did, you made a graven image or you made a painting or whatever. He said, it would be better for men if they actually worshipped the creatures that are represented. Because if you think about it, what's greater? A stock of wood that looks like a snake or an actual snake? Which one is greater? The actual snake is greater, right? It has the capacity to move. It has some um, beauty and excellence in how God made it, right? So now you're making an image of a snake... 
He said you might as well just worship the snake itself. Because the snake at least is God's workmanship, not yours. The image is the workmanship of man. They made these images. Okay? They made with the work of their own hands by the devising of their own brain. They're the ones who made them. Okay. Now they're going to worship their own creation. So Athanasius says, well, if you're going to worship in a creation, which you shouldn't, but if you're going to do it, why don't you worship God's creation? And everybody would think, well, that's ridiculous. See how hardened our hearts are. We think it's ridiculous to worship a snake, but we worship an image of a snake. So he said, you might as well worship the actual creature rather than the image of the creature. Because the image of the creature is the inferior to man. It's his creation. And worship is always to go upward. Honor always goes to the superior. So therefore, in this case, you're now worshiping your inferior. You're worshiping the work of your own hands. And he calls this changing the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image. Uh, There's an early church father named, um, I think his name is Lactantius. He wrote the Divine Institutes. And he said, everywhere where you see an image... Religion is absent. He's talking about the true religion. Every place you see an image, there's no religion there. And the reason he said that is, look at how he says, the glory of the uncorruptible God into a what? An image. So if you have the true God and his incorruptible being that you're worshiping, you can't have an image that you use to do that. They're completely and totally incompatible. They cannot go together because God is uncorruptible. Images are likenesses of corruptible things. They're not even the corruptible things themselves. They're images made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And because people say, I'm going to honor my own work, I'm going to honor the creature through my making of an image of a corruptible creature, God then says, I will judge that. I will make you dishonor your own body. I will cause you to dishonor what ought to be honorable in you by giving you over to a reprobate mind. The exchange, the word change there in verse 25 is like when you make a trade. The kids ever traded things with each other? Say, I'll give you this for this, right? Here man comes and says, Here's the truth of God. I'd like to change this in for some garbage, for some rotten trash, for a rotting carcass of a deer. I'll give you $50,000 for that dead skunk on the side of the road. Does that make any sense? Well, the truth of God is more valuable than $50,000. It's infinitely valuable. So here a man comes and says, I want to lie. Please please take my, my infinite, uncorruptible God, the truth about him. I'd like to just toss that in the garbage. And if you could feed me some lies, I will take and worship and serve the creature more than the creator. Now, the heathens, do you know that they didn't believe that they actually worshipped the images? They said, no, we don't do that. We worship the divine spirit represented by the image. But notice, Paul doesn't accept that, does he? The Holy Spirit doesn't accept that excuse. Oh, well, I just use this picture as a conduit through which I offer my worship to God. No. If you use for the uncorruptible God's worship some corruptible image, 
you are guilty of what he's talking about here. And this is what God is saying. He forbids atheism, denying that he exists. He forbids profaning him and living a life as if he didn't exist and not worshiping and glorifying him as God and our God. And he prohibits idolatry, where we take what belongs exclusively to him, whether that's external acts of religion or the internal uh, notion of obedience and devotion, and we transfer that over to some creature, to some man, or to some image, or to some institution, or what have you. If we take the honor that belongs to God, the worship, the gestures of worship, the internal attitude of worship, and we transfer that over to creatures, we are guilty of saying, I don't want you to be my God. I will not receive you as my God. I will not glorify you as God. And then God will judge us by giving us over to a debased mind. So one thing to just make a comment on, part of the point of this class has been to look at how the Shorter Catechism, which was the Colonial Catechism of America, the New England Primer, <clears throat> which school children in New England in the colonial period learned to read and learned to think from, this was the catechism that they learned to think from. So one thing to keep in mind is that when you want to build a nation, as our founding fathers did, you want to build one that does not allow for idolatry. Because the judgments of God against idolatry, against giving of the worship and glory to any other, which is due to him alone, or the permission of profanity, where people say, no, I'm not going to worship and glorify the true God as God and our God or the permission of atheism, which is the denying of the true God, contrary to the order of nature, whenever those sins are tolerated, what immediately happens is the whole civilization or nation opens itself up to divine judgments. It's like inviting God, please come destroy us. So any, it's like if you allowed a virus or a cancer to run free in your body and you did nothing to stop it. It's like you had an open wound and you poured some filth into it that would cause it to fester. If you allow it to go unchecked, the body politic becomes rotten, becomes corrupted, and eventually is destroyed by God himself. And that's actually what he's saying. In Romans 1, the Lord is describing how do people get so far gone from reality that you have men with men and women with women working what is unseemly. How do you get to that point? Well, it starts with, we have the knowledge of God, but we refuse to submit to it. We engage in the worship of God in means that he has not ordained, but that we have devised, that is, graven images. So once you tolerate the worship of God by means of graven images, you can write it down. You're going to be judged as a nation. You're going to be brought into foreign captivity. You're going to be brought into bondage. Your enemies will rule over you. You will be given over to all kinds of diseases and plagues like he describes the Egyptians had. You remember that? When he says, Israel, if you don't listen to me, I'm going to put all the plagues that I said I would put on Egypt on you. As I thought to do to them, that's what I'll do to you. Until you repent. Until you acknowledge and own me as the true God. And you eradicate all the idols. And so in our day, people are clamoring. Well, see, there are these secularists out there 
And we agree with the idolaters that the secularists should leave our country. So let's make a common cause with the idolaters, Roman Catholics, for example, and let's fight with them against these social evils like abortion and uh, all the, you know, transgenderism and sodomy and all this stuff. Well, sorry, no. Because the sodomite, as well as the idolater, both invite the judgment of God against my nation. And the sodomite does it openly and consistently. The idolater does it with a lip that says, I honor God, where his heart is far from him. He won't listen to how God says to worship. So which is worse? Well, actually, it's worse to worship God in the way of a hypocritical idolater who claims to be a devotee of the true God while spitting in God's face and worshiping however you want or your traditions handed down to you. So both of them are enemies of a commonwealth, and consequently they ought not to be tolerated. And that's an important lesson in American history. Roman Catholics were not permitted to vote in America at the beginning in almost every state. It was not permitted. They could not hold office. They could not vote. Why? Because when you want to build a society that pleases God, you can't let idolaters in. You cannot countenance and accept them. So then who were the first people that said, oh, we want toleration, we want, we want diversity, we want to be inclusive of everybody? Well, it's the Jews and the Roman Catholics. Let us come in, let us set up our synagogues of Satan, and let us worship in our idolatry, and, you know, give us the right to vote. Well, what happens to our society? It goes down really quickly. Everything becomes corrupt, Everything becomes destroyed to the point where now our foreign adversaries rule over us. We don't rule over ourselves. And that's, the, that's what God threatens is, don't become idolaters. Don't allow these people to control you. Don't accept their false religion. Remember what he said when they went into the land of Canaan. What were they supposed to do with their pictures? Destroy it all. Destroy it all. Destroy it all. Because if you don't, These people will be a snare to you. Their gods will be a snare to you. And then I'll take you away to captivity and you'll lose all the blessings that you had. And so from a national perspective, as well as from a personal perspective, disobedience to the first commandment is the way of destruction. It's the way of misery. It's the way of corruption. And therefore, we must not tolerate it in ourselves. We must not tolerate it in our society. All right. 